When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Hey everyone, I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Join us as we unveil our new music podcast, Rivals. It's a look back at famous music rivalries of the past. Every week, Jordan and I will explore a new rivalry, delving into all the dirty details about our beloved musical icons who just can't seem to get along with their fellow legends. And then we'll debate each other about who deserves to have the upper hand in these classic conflicts. You'll remember the biggest beast from music history and hopefully become aware of some you didn't know. Join us on Rivals, a new podcast from iHeartRadio debuting on February 26th. Listen and follow on the the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, here's a question we get a lot from our listeners. Mm-hmm. Are women really worse drivers than men? Ah, uh, yes. The ultimate gender stereotype. It is a gender stereotype. And I bet a few of you, when you saw the title of today's podcast and your iTunes queue, were sort of like, really? Really, Molly and Kristen? You're going to go there? Isn't it a little too basic? You're going to get behind the wheel of oh, the stereotype? Kristen, you are starting early with I'm the puns. Trying, I'm trying to get things cranked up here, Molly. <laughs> well, stop. we are, we are going to go back because once we started to research it, as usual, there's some pretty interesting stuff behind the stereotype, not quite as basic as we thought. And my fondest hope is that this podcast will prove both my father and my brother's wrong about my driving abilities. Molly, do you get some some flack from the men in your family? I do, and I think it's unnecessary. Not saying I'm a perfect driver, mm-hmm. but I'm not saying that they are better drivers than I am. Yeah. I will say that I prefer to drive uh without my dad in the car. He just always he he just grips the, oh, the, grip. the door handle, yeah, really tightly. And how so is that not supposed to affect you? That's going to make you feel worse. It's going to affect your import, your uh performance. And they're just undermining you before you even start. Mm-hmm. Anytime you start to put on the brakes, grip, <laughs> tight grip. Well, Molly, let's, let's get down to brass tacks okay. and answer this question. So let's start out with a study from January 2007. This comes from MSNBC.com. And there was a guy named David Gerard from Carnegie Mellon University who co-authored a study on road risk. And he found that male drivers have a 77% higher risk of dying in a car accident than women based on miles driven. And he admitted, and I, I found this a pretty telling quote in this article, that he lets his wife drive based on the research he had done in putting together this database of all these traffic incidents. He lets his wife drive. She's the safest person to have behind the wheel, according to his research. Yeah, and the um, demographic that is most at risk for fatalities on the road are male drivers ages 16 to 23. And their fatality rates are four times higher 
an average. And that's one reason why uh, car insurance premiums for young male drivers will often be much higher, up to 40% higher than car insurance premiums for teen female drivers. Right. Now, once you reach a certain age, women are more at risk of dying in a car accident. He gave the case of an 82-year-old woman. And basically, they are at risk of dying because they are old and yeah. frail. And I think that this is where... You're going to see that there are just so many caveats when you start discussing these traffic statistics in that, you know, he made the overall claim that women were safer drivers. But then a lot of the article is about this poor 82 year old woman hypothetical mm-hmm. who is at the highest risk of dying. Because mm-hmm. there are so many different factors that you have to take into account when you evaluate road risk. Um for instance, uh, he says one of the riskiest combinations in the database were men between ages 21 and 24 driving motorcycles between midnight and 4 a.m. And their road fatality risk was 45,000 times higher than normal because you have, you know, the, the age cohort that tends to drive more reckless than others. You have motorcycles, which are inherently more dangerous. And then you have the hours between midnight and 4 a.m. when you have drunk drivers on the road. And limited visibility. Yep. All sorts of factors. So it is very hard. It'll be th- hard throughout this podcast to separate out all these sort of, you know, coexisting factors. Mm-hmm. But you brought up the fact that for teen drivers, uh, the premiums are lower for women or for teenage girls than than teenage boys. So why don't we go into some findings uh, that the Wall Street Journal published just this week about teenage drivers? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal reported that insurance premiums for teen girl drivers are on the rise because of likely because of an increase in insurance claims among that group. And along with that, uh, Allstate Insurance Company uh, published a survey that it commissioned about teen driving habits, which found that 48% of the girls said that they were likely to drive 10 miles over the speed limit as compared to 36% of the boys who admitted to speeding. And then of those girls, 16% characterized their own driving as aggressive up from only 9% in 2005 when they did, last time they did this uh, teen driving survey. And just over half of the girls said they're likely to drive while talking on the phone or texting. My pet peeve. Yep. Compared with 38% of the boys. And the findings from this all-state study, or survey, I should say, were really surprising to the people conducting it because women are characteristically far more cautious behind the wheel than guys are. And the survey authors wondered whether, you know, this actually reflected a shift in teen girl attitudes. Maybe they're, they were self-reporting riskier driving behavior as a way to insert their, assert themselves. Yeah. To keep up with the boys. Mm-hmm. Now, self-reported surveys are always troubling. I mean, you yeah. can't take them with, you have to take them with a grain of salt because people could lie and maybe, that, and that was a straight out quote from one of the Allstate people is the boys on this survey lied. Mm-hmm. They are aggressive drivers in, in Allstate's experience. Um, but I do think that, you know, as Kristen said, they brought up this really interesting question of are girls trying to keep up with boys in terms of just, you know, being perceived as equal by taking on some of their characteristic road traits. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, I think that that assertion is a little bit of a stretch. Just thinking about myself at 16, I wasn't really trying to, you know. I mean, obviously, once you get the keys to the car, it is, you know, sort of 
your first taste of independence because mm-hmm. you can leave your parents' house and you can really go wherever you want. It's just you and An the open, open road. road. <laughs> Let's um, write a song about cars. Listen. <laughs> okay. There are too many, too many sung by boys. Yes. And one of which is, uh, one of my least favorite Beatles songs, as you and I were discussing before we started this podcast, much to Molly's horror, baby, you can drive my car gets on among my nerves. And I feel like now that I know this about Kristen, I'm going to use it to my utmost advantage. And just when she's weak, when she's low, she's going to hear my voice from over the cubicle walls going, beep, 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 yeah. Why would you do that to me, Molly? I don't know. (laughs) There's really no good reason to do that. Cruel. (laughs) It is cruel. All right, I won't do it. But I think we can all agree that Kristen's a fool for not liking that song. And I look forward to hearing from all of you who hate it as well. Because I'm sure you're all going to write in. I'm sure we've sparked a mini war. (laughs) Kristen, we're off topic. Bring it on. Yeah, let's get back on topic. Like you mentioned, the Allstate survey was based on self-reporting. So you do kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. However, there was a study mentioned in the Telegraph that also indicates that perhaps men are just a little bit better at picking up driving skills than women uh, because it found that girls needed an average of 27 or sorry, 21 driving lessons before they passed their driving tests compared to just 17 lessons for boys. And at the same time, uh, men were more likely to pass their tests on driving tests the first time around uh, with only 54% needing another attempt while 57% of women had to take a second test. Although, I mean, is 54 and 57 that great of a statistical gap, Molly? It's not a big deal. And I think that this article also pointed out some reasons why women might have been a little too worked up to get the test right the first time. It did show that women were much more affected by nerves. They really let their emotions get the best of them. Because, you know, who likes being judged? Yeah. Apparently men are better at than women, but that's a whole other podcast. Well, but men might also be uh, passing the test more because they were more likely to try to befriend or flirt with the examiner in order to get their pass certificate. So that's that that blows up a nice stereotype. Yeah, it was so weird. Just the focus this article gave on that. Yes, that women have this, you know perception, this reputation as flirting with the old fella from the DMV to get mm-hmm. that pass when they can't really parallel park. But according to this research, it's men more who are like, hey, baby, you can drive my car. Oh, another Beatles reference. Nice. But you know what, Kristen, when I was reading all these articles, I was sort of like teen drivers, they're a whole different beast. Yeah. Everyone needs some practice when they're starting out. Mm-hmm. Let's go to drivers of our age, because I do think I mean, let's let's hope my father would at least agree that I'm a better driver now than I was when I was a teenager. Okay. He may still view me as a teenager driving, but but I'm older, I'm wiser. So let's take the teenage drivers out of the equation. Who's a better driver now, men or women? Well, according to the Freakonomics blog on New York Times, that is a very tricky question to answer. And we kind of mentioned that earlier when we were talking about that study published, uh, study results published by MSNBC in that there are so many different factors that contribute to road risk aside from uh, just gender. So really just boiling it down to, um, you know, men versus women isn't necessarily an easy thing to do. Right. So he looks at all the different ways. Uh, this is Eric A. Morris on the Freakonomics blog, and he has a whole series about male and female driving differences. And the fact of the matter is, is that men drive a lot more than women. 
Their commutes are on average longer. Uh, their commutes tend to take them maybe more on freeways than women's do. Um, it's So you can't just look at a total of accidents because when you look at the total of accidents, females have fewer accidents total, but men are driving more. So then you got to look at accidents per mile driven so that you can look at, you know, a woman who drives 10 miles, a man who drives 10 miles. And when you look at it that way, the men have fewer accidents. Yeah, uh, and Morris is referencing um, research that came out in the mid-1990s, I believe, which found that when you look at per mile driven, women were 12% more likely to get into a car crash. And that was confirmed by another paper, which found that women were involved in 16% more accidents than men on a per mile driven basis. But then when you look at the severity of the car wrecks, then it shifts back to the men because the team of researchers also found that for each mile driven, women were 26% more likely to be involved in crashes involving injuries, but men were more likely to be involved in fatal car accidents. Right. So if a man gets in an accident, there's a greater likelihood of of it going real bad. Yeah, 80% more likely. Now, the problem that Morris acknowledges with these facts is you can't tell who's at fault in the accidents necessarily. I mean, it may be that uh, the man was driving, there's a fatality, but the data is unclear on whether... You know, who caused the accident? Was it a female driver or a male driver? So again, so many ways to qualify this data. Uh, but you know, that was the best, best, you know, look that he could give it is that yes, women more accidents, men more fatal accidents. Mm-hmm. But well, throughout all of this too, Molly, the big question that kept coming up, I think for both of us was why are we even, why are we even asking this question in the first place? Like where did the, this idea that men kind of should naturally be better drivers, that cars are more the male in the male territory than the female territory, even come up in the first place. I mean, it's, it's a very, driving is not a, you know, it doesn't require a lot of higher order thinking, it's, it seems like, you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> You're such a female driver, Kristen, <laughs> not thinking about all the things you have to keep in mind. Well, I mean, you kind of, you can just kind of go on, on autopilot and it just doesn't seem like it takes an extraordinary person to, to be a good driver or not. And yet we, it's a stereotype that we come back to over and over again. So where, where did that come from? Well, you know, we have Eric Morris again from Freakonomics to thank because he, he did do this really great series that unpacked a lot of, um, this male versus female behavior. And he has a really great history that takes us back to the beginning of the car. Now, Morris makes the case that in the 19th century, we've got lots of changes in this country going on. We've got industrialization and we've got suburbanization. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there are all these jobs to drive to, but you've got to drive farther to get to them. So with both of those shifts, at the same time, we have the home being established even more so as the woman's sphere, while the men would travel outside of the home, you know, to to the factories or wherever to go to work. And in doing so, they would be more likely to use some kind of newfangled transportation, whether that would be, uh, you know, a streetcar or a horse car or the Model T. Now, if the if the house is the woman's sphere and all of a sudden you have an easier way to get out and about, you could see how men who wanted to keep women out of their offices, they may have been threatened by increasing levels of female education at the time, would have been like, 
whoa, lady, yes, yes, you can go to work, but you cannot, you cannot be driving this car. Yeah, tra- a woman traveling outside of the home, unaccompanied, especially for upper-class women, was seen as very unladylike. I mean, you wouldn't want to tra- traverse the dusty streets, mm-hmm. you know, and, and get dirt all over your new frock. You were supposed to wear driving gloves. There are all sorts of ways to make driving very feminine Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, men going to work was seen as a norm. And thus, if you were driving to work yourself, you had to, you know, show that you were still feminine. Well, in the process of getting a car started back in the day was not as simple as it was today because they would have the uh, the hand cranks and obviously a woman, you know, popping a hood and cranking up using the, the hand crank to crank up a car Again, wasn't seen as as very ladylike or appropriate, even though it really wasn't something that women wouldn't necessarily be strong enough to do, although that's uh, how it's often portrayed. Um, but it, it's really just a, a socialization mm-hmm. thing. Like, lady, you can't crank this car. Yeah. I am your big masculine man. I shall crank your car. Let me do this for you. So as a result, very few women had driver's licenses. Families had one car that the man drove to work. Uh, you know, women would be driven to their grocery stores. Uh, there were a lot of political movements at the time to ban women from driving altogether. But then we've got the good old free market coming and saving women just a little bit because the car makers realized that they had sort of hit a saturation point in terms of selling cars to men. You know, every family now had a car. It seemed like the epitome of success. And the car makers were like, Car, families should need two cars. We'll sell them to the other adult in the family. Yeah, this really starts in the 1920s. And uh, you see a shift in advertising, automobile advertising, targeted towards female consumption. And it's funny because those kind of ads would focus on more of the uh, superficial aspects of cars, such as, oh, look at this lovely color mm-hmm. or this soft, buttery upholstery. Things like that. Which I think is still, you still see that in car ads today. It's not a new phenomenon. From the very beginning, cars were sold to women as stylish accessories Mm -hmm. as opposed to rugged, utilitarian, like, you know. Yeah, look at how much horsepower this manly truck has. And then look at the cute decorative flower vase in this Volkswagen Beetle. And you know what? The Volkswagen always ranks at the top of cars that women are more likely to drive than men. Mm Mm-hmm. You found a list of the top nine vehicles yeah. that get sold to, to women more often, and Volkswagen holds the top two positions. Top two positions. And this came from the L.A. Times. Uh, I believe it came out last year, so a lot of these are 2000 mo- 2009 models. But I would assume that uh, the information probably still holds true today because uh, the Beetle, like you mentioned, is Almost always at the top of this list. But in 2009, it was actually beat out by the Volkswagen Tiguan. Is that how you say it? I don't know. I have to say, like, I I, heard of the Tiguan before. I have to say, I do fulfill sort of that female stereotype of not knowing much about cars. And when I got my first car, I had to put a red sweater in the front seat. So I'd always know which car was mine. That's a good idea. But I do think that, you know, that idea of being sold a car that, you know, you don't know that much about your, you know, your dad or your boyfriend is the one who figures out the horsepower, the miles mm-hmm. per gallon. Mm-hmm. You're just concerned with cup holders or this new thing that car makers are starting to bring out where, you know, here's a stiletto friendly pedal. Yeah, this is so far just something that uh, the Chevy Equinox has gone for. It has it comes with an optional heel pedal and it's the first and only car model with a female friendly. Huh. 
petal, um, which I'm sure plenty of women who never wear stilettos would probably take offense at. It seems um, kind of ridiculous to think about a stiletto-friendly heel. But there was a video um, on a Time Magazine's website where one of the reporters went out with very high set of heels on, and she uh, she drove drove the new Equinox around. And she said that it was actually a lot easier uh, for pressing the gas down, but the it was still kind of uncomfortable to use the brake pedal. And I got to say, a lot of times if I'm driving around with heels, I'll just drive barefooted, pop them off. Because it is hard. It does feel kind of dangerous if you're driving in a really high set of heels. So even though those things might seem offensive, like you were saying, Kristen, there is a reason why cars are still sold to us this way. And I think it's good to know that, you know, it's it's an old thing. We've been fighting the stereotype for a long time. We've always been sort of treated as the inferior where cars are um, concerned. And sometimes women might take that as a self-fulfilling prophecy. And sometimes women might really take grievance with it. But I think it's good to remember that driving is, you know, it's a new phenomenon. We're yeah. very new to driving, you know, comparatively. And so just really briefly, we want to broaden it out and talk about female drivers in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, because this was something really interesting to look at, especially when we were uh, we learned about sort of the history, the social history of driving in the U.S. and what a big taboo it was for women earlier in the 20th century to get behind the wheel, because this is something that's still going on in Saudi Arabia. And uh, there might be might be a little bit more opportunity for women, women drivers opening up in that country very soon. Right, because these drivers have been living under a ban. Female drivers are banned from driving in Saudi Arabia uh, thanks to an event that happened in 1990 in which uh, women took, you know, they started driving around in these streets as this silent protest for women's rights. And so that caused this big crackdown on female drivers. There are all these proclamations that women driving were a force of evil. It was a sign you know, just the end of the world because it was a sign. I mean, like like we were talking about, driving is a form of independence. Mm-hmm. If you live in a country where women's rights and women's independence are not value valued, then the most, you know, visible symbol you can make of that is to take away their cars. And all of that sprang from the actions of just 49 women in 15 cars driving through Riyadh. I mean, it's not even, it's, it's a pretty small protest, if you think about it, that had these, Enormous ripple effects, and uh, The Guardian mentions that a study in 2004 showed that 47% of Saudi women owned a car but were entirely dependent on men in the family to drive them, or they had to hire drivers. And some women will even have their underage sons drive them just to you know, get errands done or make sure that they don't get caught driving a car. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds, you know, it sounds sort of, you know, crazy. When I was first reading this article, I was like, whoa. That's that's a good way to sum it up. I was like, whoa. But then when you look at the history of women and driving in our country, and it it honestly doesn't seem so different. Definitely not as restrictive, but it's very interesting to see over time. And the reason we should mention that this popped up in the news in the first place is because uh, there has been a rumor um, that... Saudi women will be allowed to drive within the next two months. Yeah. So it seems like such a given for us. Like we said, Molly, you know, driving really is the ultimate independence when you, whether you're a boy or a girl, once you turn 16 and you get the keys to the car and you can go out on the road. I mean, I still remember being 16, 17 and just the feeling 
turning on the radio, cranking up my jams, <laughs> and driving down the road alone. It's it's a huge it's a huge thing. So it'll be uh, it'll be an interesting thing to see what happens in Saudi Arabia and and see if um, I guess other women's rights kind of follow in suit with something as basic as as driving. Yeah. So, Maybe if that happens. Um, and Molly, I think that we should definitely give a shout out to Scott and Ben over at High Speed Stuff, another one of our uh, How Stuff Works family podcasts, uh, because they have done um, they've done some episodes dealing with uh, women behind the wheel as well, and it's just a good, it's a handy podcast. It's a great podcast. If you want to learn more about your car, mm-hmm. how your car works, cool cars, yep, listen to High Speed Stuff. High Speed Stuff. Um, so with that, Molly, why don't we do a little bit of listener mail? All right, so I've got an email here from Sheridan. Uh, she writes about our tattoo podcast. She writes, I was a little surprised when you didn't mention henna tattoos in your tattoo podcast. Although henna tattoos aren't real tattoos, they're just staying in the skin, I think they're still important to consider when talking about tattoos and feminism. Henna is more feminine than masculine, as most designs are flowers or more pretty girly designs. They're meant to be beautiful and in India used as a marriage ritual. The brides will get hennaed all over their body, and sometimes the groom's initials will be hidden in the design, and he has to find them. My mom and I both do henna for ourselves and friends, and I get lots of comments on how beautiful the designs are. Unlike real tattoos, you don't have to worry about long-term effects or misconceptions about your personality, because if you don't like it, you can wash it and it'll come off sooner, or if you do like it, you can always reapply it. I find henna a great temporary way to express myself without causing damage to my body or my reputation. So that's from Sheridan, an alternative to tattooing. All right, well, I've got one here from Anne, and she says, this is also in reference to our tattoo podcast, and she has three tattoos already and is planning her fourth. And she said, I was interested in hearing how you think that no matter where a woman gets a tattoo, it can be sexualized. I think I have an example of when it is not, and it also happens to relate to my next tattoo. And she goes on to say that um, she's 30 years old, and she is actually a widow, and um, she wants to get a memorial tattoo for her husband, which is apparently very common, especially among um, younger younger widows. And she says, some people get names or important symbols. Some are large, some are small, but all are tributes of love. Some people even get ash mixed in with the ink. She said, I didn't have my husband cremated, so that's not an option for me. I'm still waiting to set up my appointment because I'm waiting for the super great artist I found. But when I get it, I'm having the drawing my husband made for our wedding program as he was an artist. Um, and it's not only his original art, it's a beautiful picture full of symbolism and also, to me, a personal tribute I can make to him without it seeming obvious that this is a memorial tattoo unless I choose to, pe- to choose to tell people. She says, so I'm curious, do you think that these memorial tattoos can be construed as sexual as well? And that's an interesting question. And Molly, what do you think? Well, I think that, you know, if someone doesn't know that it is a memorial tattoo... On first glance, they may make that assumption. But, you know, the thing I've been struck with with all the emails we've gotten about tattoos is that everyone seems to have a really cool story and symbolism with their tattoo. Mm-hmm. And I think that once you know that about a person, it's, it's impossible to see these tattoos as sexual. Yeah. So it's all about knowing the meaning behind and not making a judgment on a superficial assumption. Well said. Would, shall we do one more? Of course. All right, and to close things out, I've got an email here from Amelia, and this is also about our tattoo podcast, but she doesn't really like the sources. 
that we use. She said, while I really enjoyed your take on modern tattooing and women, your information on tattooed ladies in history didn't live up to your usual good research practices. Christine Brownberger's essay, Revolting Beauty, relies on two sources for the information on tattooing history, which are Margaret Mifflin's Bodies of Subversion and Albert Perry's Tattoos, Secrets of a Strange Art as Practiced by the Natives of the United States, originally published in 1933. Perry's full book is full of stigma and scorn about tattooing and contains very little actual fact. The best this book does is illustrate how much stigma existed toward tattooing in the 1930s. Unfortunately, many researchers have relied on his book for factual historical information. Um, and she goes on to point out some uh, some issues that she has with both of those sources. And she says, I would also argue that early tattooed performing women worked as feminists in getting tattooing much more visible for the years before the artistic tattoo revolution of the 1970s. These ladies didn't consider themselves feminists, but simply women who were doing something a little different in an attempt to make their lives more comfortable by choosing a fairly well-paid career. Which, I guess, if you think about it, is sort of a type of feminism. True. So, uh, thanks for writing in, Amelia. And, of course, if you guys have any questions, concerns, thoughts you'd like to share with me and Molly, email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. During the week, you should check out our Facebook page. It's facebook.com backslash stuffmomnevertoldyou. We also have a Twitter account that we would love for you guys to follow as well. And we are at momstuffpodcast on Twitter. And then, finally, we have a blog that we update regularly during the week. And it's found at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair. But Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.